This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello again. I'm Matt Kippelberg, and I'm going to now go over some of the basics involved with surgery for localized prostate cancer. So just to start with uh, some very basic orientation in terms of where the prostate is and what it does. The prostate is a reproductive organ. Its job is to make seminal fluid and to help push that fluid forward at the time of ejaculation. You can see from a side view of anatomy here, the prostate sits uh, at the outlet of the bladder, which is here. It sits behind the pubic bone, which is the bone that can be felt above the penis. It sits in front of the rectum. So biopsies are typically done through the rectum into the prostate this way. And it sits above the pelvic floor. So the muscles of the pelvic floor, which include the sphincter muscle complex here, are what keep men dry. Urine passes through the out of the bladder, through the prostate, through the urethra, and ultimately, of course, out the end of the penis. And then the final fact is that the nerves that drive erections run right here along the back surface of the prostate. So radical prostatectomy means removing the prostate away from the bladder and away from the sphincter muscle here. And we sew the neck of the bladder down to the urethra to recreate this connection. Uh, the seminal vesicles are removed at the time of the surgery as well, um, as is the central portion of the urethra running through the middle of the prostate. And in some cases, we also do a lymph node dissection if there is a risk of cancer cells being out in the nodes. And um, the lymph nodes are not pictured here. They run along the inner surface of the pelvic bones. Um, surgery can be done in different ways. Uh, traditionally, it was done through an open incision underneath the belly button. Today, the vast majority of the prostatectomy cases done at UCSF and most other high volume centers are done with what's termed robot-assisted laparoscopy using the da Vinci machine. Um, this machine is not actually a robot that implies autonomy. The company keeps promising that with the next version, we can push start and go get coffee. Uh, that of course is still a long ways away. What this system is in reality is a virtual reality system that lets us operate through small incisions, typically five or six small incisions in the abdomen, uh, using a 3D virtual reality system where we are driving robotic instruments that actually have more planes of motion than the human wrist to operate in small confined spaces like the male pelvis. It is critical to recognize, however, that the robot is just a tool and that ultimately the outcomes are driven by surgeon skill and experience, not by the question of whether it's an open or robot assisted uh, prostatectomy. Uh, an analogy that I've always liked, although I don't claim credit for it, is if you give Yo-Yo Ma a Stradivarius violin, he's gonna sound much better than he would on a cheap violin. You give me a violin, you give me a Stradivarius, you leave the building uh, because I don't play the violin and a Stradivarius does not make me a violinist. And it really is a good analogy. Uh, the robot does not make a bad surgeon safe or a mediocre surgeon good, but in the right hands, it allows us to minimize blood loss, speed recovery, and perhaps improve functional outcomes. Um, it's also critical to realize that volume and experience really do matter and that most surgeons actually do relatively low volume surgery in this country. Um, on the right here is a table from an older study, which probably still applies, uh, looking nationally at the surgical volume here. And the top line here is the somewhat shocking statistic that over a quarter of prostatectomies in America are done by surgeons who do one case per year. And in fact, if you do 50 or more per year, that puts you in the top second percentile. On the left are data from the National Aqua Registry, which I help run for the American Neurological Association, showing similar numbers. This is by practice, not by individual urologist, uh, but here the annual case volumes range from just one or two cases up to well over 300 for some of the larger groups. 
So what's involved with the prostatectomy? Well, this is of course a surgical procedure requiring general anesthesia. There are the typical short-term risks of any operation, things like bleeding and infection, injuring organs around the prostate like the rectum. These are typically very, very low for men who have not had a lot of prior belly surgery or prior radiation to the prostate. The typical hospital stay is just one night. We leave a catheter, which is a little tube draining the bladder for one week after the surgery. And men are advised to stay on relatively light activity for about four to six weeks afterward. Now, prostatectomy does have the somewhat minor advantage of allowing the final Gleason grade and stage to be determined. Um, we get that result within a week or two after the surgery. And critically, within two months after the surgery, six to eight weeks, the PSA should fall to an undetectable level and ideally stay undetectable forever. If the PSA rises after surgery, we usually get that signal relatively quickly um, and additional treatment such as radiation therapy, hormonal therapy, or other systemic treatments can be brought to bear in these cases. And we also have the advantage of being able to send off the final tumor for genomic analysis uh, we're going to talk more about this uh, later on in the course today, uh, but genomics give us a bit of a sharper crystal ball picture as to how the cancer may behave over the long term and can help us make decisions about timing of radiation after surgery. Uh, this is one uh, example study showing that for men with favorable genomics, which is over here on the left, very few men actually progress to metastatic disease. In this graph here, each step up is a man who developed metastasis out to 10 years over time, from time zero out to 10 years. Um, and very few men ultimately develop metastases uh, regardless of the PSA at the time of radiation for men with a low genomic score. On the other hand, men with high scores, with a, with a higher decipher score, uh, we see a real advantage to treating early when the PSA is less than 0.1 as opposed to waiting until it's higher you know, in the 0.1 to 0.5 range or even over 0.5. Now we see far lower rates of metastasis when the, uh, when the radiation is given early after surgery in the setting of a high genomic test. We're able now to get even more information out of tests like this and are able to make some predictions. These are not prospectively validated yet, but we can make predictions about response to other types of treatments as well based on the tissue we get at the time of surgery. Now, there are the well-recognized uh, downsides to surgery, mostly focused on urinary leakage and erectile dysfunction. So when we remove the, uh, the bladder catheter, most men will have some degree of leakage. Um, usually when the surgery is done at UCSF or a comparable institution, we're usually talking about a few drops of urine that leak with coughing, straining, sneezing, laughing, anything that tenses up the belly muscles. This is usually minor. We're usually talking about a few drops here and there, not an open water faucet. So typically pads kind of like women's menstrual liners are sufficient. We're not usually talking about diaper level incontinence even early on. Uh, the typical time that pads are required is a few weeks to a few months on average, but the recovery can go on for up to a year. Um, in our hands at UCSF, by one year, over 90% of men will typically be dry and can get rid of the pads. Most of the remainder will have relatively minor leakage manageable with a single pad per day. Bad long-term leakage um, is quite uncommon for men that have not had prior radiation therapy or other complicating factors. And persistent leakage can be addressed with additional procedures or, or other interventions. We should also point out that men who have a lot of obstructive symptoms at baseline, either from a bad cancer or much more commonly from BPH, 
benign growth of the prostate, which is actually not related to prostate cancer risk at all, but typically coexists in many men as they get older. Well, by taking the prostate out of the picture, we can actually alleviate the obstruction. So it is actually not that uncommon in this day and age for men to have better urinary function overall a few months down the road after surgery than they do at baseline if they have obstruction uh, going in. Uh, now, I will say the main, the big caveat here is that when we do surgery on men who have had prior radiation therapy or other prior whole gland treatments, focal therapies, then the urinary recovery is much more difficult to predict and is often much slower. In terms of erection recovery, erections are driven by the nerves that run right along the backside of the prostate. And erections, erection recovery is driven by age, by function going in. Of course, we don't make anybody's erections better by doing anything to the prostate and how much nerve preservation we can do. We can usually spare at least some of the nerve tissue, even in the setting of aggressive cancers. And the extent to which we can spare the nerves is driven by factors like the tumor stage, whether it's confined to the prostate or outside the edge, and by imaging findings, whether MRI and ultrasound uh, give us an indication that the cancer may be outside the edge or not. Almost all men will have a drop in erection function, at least initially. And then the recovery is typically much slower than the urinary recovery. It can go on for up to two years after the surgery because the nerves need to recover all the way from the spine. And it's critical to realize there is no ejaculation ever again after the surgery. Orgasm is possible, um, but there's no fluid produced and no natural fertility for that reason either. And as I said, uh, the recovery can go on for up to two years and often the greatest recovery is in the second year after surgery. About two thirds of men will typically get back to baseline within two years after surgery. But again, this is variable depending in, in large part on baseline function and other factors. We typically are as aggressive as men want to be in terms of penile rehabilitation, starting with medications or using one of many other options available to us for men who have a drop in sexual function after surgery or any other uh, type of treatment for prostate cancer. Now, I would stress here that inappropriate care is never high quality, and no matter how well the surgery is done, no matter how quickly uh, urinary and sexual function come back, if this was a tumor that did not need to happen for a low-grade, small-volume Gleason 3 plus 3 tumor, for example, that is not high-quality care. And I stress again uh, that at UCSF, our focus is really on intermediate and high-risk disease. A brief word on focal therapy. This is uh, the equivalent in prostate cancer of a lumpectomy, uh, as would be done for breast cancer. This is a case that I saw literally just this week, a small, clearly visible tumor here where all the rest of the biopsies of the prostate are negative. Well, why should we treat the entire prostate here? Why can't we treat just this little lesion? And in fact, there is growing interest in focal therapy for carefully selected cases. We still have no interest in over-treating Gleason grade group one, those are the three plus threes, but for grade group two tumors that we can see on MRI or ultrasound um, where their other biopsies are negative, uh, we are increasingly interested in the idea of focal therapy uh, to destroy just the tumor and leave the rest of the prostate alone. Uh, so we've used cryotherapy for many years. That's freezing the prostate. Uh, we have a new HIFU system that's high intensity focused ultrasound. And there's lots of other treatments out there. Uh, you know, the ablation modality, how we destroy the tissue is probably less important than knowing what it is that we are treating. So in summary, prostate cancer, uh, prostatectomy remains one of our gold standard options for men with intermediate to high-risk prostate cancer. And it's important to realize for high-risk disease, it is often the first step in a multi-step uh, effort to cure a high-grade prostate cancer um, and may be well combined with, with radiation, systemic treatment, and others. Uh, the risks of urinary leakage are higher with surgery than with other treatments. Um, on the other hand, risks of urinary and bowel irritation are lower. 
And again, the surgical outcomes really are very surgeon and center specific. Thanks for your attention. And we will look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Dr. Cooperberg. Um, so there's a couple questions. Uh, do you want to talk briefly about, you said you would address during the live question session, but lymph node dissection, to what extent, why is it done? Does it have an impact on outcome? Yeah, so I didn't talk much about it in the talk, but lymph node dissection is, remains an important part of the surgery for men with higher risk disease uh, because lymph nodes are usually the place that cells will escape first when they do escape the prostate. Um, and traditional imaging like CT and, uh, CT and MRI typically will not show us enlarged nodes unless, unless there is over a billion cells in uh, one of the nodes. That's what it takes to actually enlarge it. Uh, with newer imaging like PSMA PET that we'll be talking about tomorrow, we can drop that threshold significantly. We can see smaller metastases in the nodes, um, but still microscopic uh, disease we still will not see. So we have different risk systems similar to the ones Dr. Feng uh, talked about earlier, which can help us make predictions about the likelihood of microscopic involvement in the nodes. Um, and when the risk is high enough to warrant doing the, the node dissection, we usually will. It adds somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes to the surgery. It does not add much in the way of risk, except uh, for the risk of a lymphocele, which is an accumulation of lymphatic fluid after the surgery, which usually does not cause any symptoms. Um, as far as the question about extended versus standard lymph node dissection, this gets into one of, you know, there's, there's more areas of controversy in prostate cancer than we know what to do with. Uh, it's actually a very difficult study, very difficult question to answer. Memorial Sloan Kettering actually, you know, God bless them, ran a randomized trial of over 1,200 patients where they randomized men to extended versus standard lymph node dissection. The problem is at the end of the day, the average number of nodes removed in the standard group was 12. In the so-called extended group, it was 14. So despite their best intentions, um, you know, either the surgeons were not capable of really scaling down to a, a limited dissection or scaling up to a, to a particularly aggressive dissection. So I think the jury is still out on that. Um, there has never been a study that's shown that doing more node dissection improves cure rates. You know, we know that surgery alone does cure about 15% of men with positive lymph nodes, um, by which we sort of assume that we're curing at least a subset of the prostate cancers by doing a node dissection, but that has really not been well-established in randomized trials. Uh, we're very interested in this question. It's an area of active study for us um, at UCSF. And actually one area of innovation here, which may not come up tomorrow during the PSMA session is we're starting to run intraoperative PSMA imaging uh, where we are actually um, attaching a PSMA directed molecule to a fluorescent tag that we can identify during surgery. We have a special camera for our version of the surgical robot at UCSF where we can actually uh, turn on this fluorescent light. You can think about it a little bit like a black light um, whereby a node that actually has PSMA positive prostate cancer cells in it will light up green. So we're in, we're in very early stages of this, but the hope is that that will allow us to really focus only on those lymph nodes that might have cancer cells in them. Great. Matt, while we're talking about PSMA, uh, we're not, let's not start the next talk quite yet. While we're talking about uh, PSMA, is there a role for a preoperative PSMA PET scan? Yeah, great question. Um, another area of controversy. Um, yes, but we don't necessarily always know what to do with the results um, because we've got decades and decades of experience 
uh, validating the role of surgery and radiation therapy for men with so-called M0 high-risk prostate cancer. And we have known all along that many of those men have microscopic metastatic disease. Um, and yet we've, we know that surgery and radiation therapy are helpful. Well, now what we're doing is driving what's called a stage migration, meaning we're taking men who we called M0 because the bone scan was negative. Now we're saying they're M1 because the PSMA PET is positive. Well, did we now say you're disqualified from surgery and radiation? That's probably not the right thing. So we're not yet clear what to do with the information. I will say when we get a PSMA PET before surgery, if there is, for example, a lymph node a little bit out of the template uh, that we would normally, normally go after, we can take out that additional node during the surgery. Um, sometimes we may find, you know, one spot in the pelvis, for example, um, on a PSMA PET where the bone stem was negative. You know, again, there's no guideline here and there's no randomized trials to tell us what to do. We are typically offering the standard sort of local therapy discussion with the understanding that that spot is also going to need uh, radiation therapy um, after treatment. So I think it's really kind of the, we're, we're at the bleeding edge of where the science is and we're, we are going to await new trials. We're actually running some of those trials here um, at UCSF for both surgery and radiation therapy. So it's a little I, bit of a I think, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, PSMA PET is not approved uh, for the preoperative setting. It yep. is approved, FDA approved for the climbing PSA setting. Correct. So that if we're doing it, we're doing it off-label as part of a study and so forth, and yep. it's not yet considered the standard of care. Definitely true. Definitely okay. true. Great. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.